Thank you, Howard. Good morning. Um, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. We've got uh, Stacy back there with some. Y'all come on in. Um, and uh, we need, uh, Charles needs a lesson down here. By the way, thank you for filling in for me. Uh, Becky and I work hard uh, uh, to try and fit our vacation and travel around Sunday school so that we're not gone on Sunday. But uh, uh, there are two Sundays this summer, one the, two weeks ago when Charles filled in and one that's upcoming that, that we have to be gone for. And we hate being gone. Uh, from here. We love being gone from the heat, um, but not from here. I've taken my ring off to remind me that Debbie Riddle has told me uh, that uh, she's been in contact with Israel, several people there over the last week, and uh, our Israel trip is still on. She and, and other folks don't want anyone worried about uh, oh, the stuff going on in the Gaza Strip and, and uh, that kind of mess. A, it will probably be, be gone, and B, it uh, really doesn't affect what uh, we do and our trip anyway. There's great safety there, and if you look at it statistically, we've got a higher crime rate here in Houston, so your chances are better if you go ahead and get over there. Um, <laughs> So uh, uh, please, uh, uh, it is not a closed thing. We're still looking uh, 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 to add more people to the trip. And we have our brochures out on the table. Debbie is down here in this pretty, what do we call that, salmon color? Salmon. salmon? Okay, all right. Pretty as well, thank you. I've been eating fish for the last three weeks, and that's what it looked like to me was salmon. Um, pretty salmon colored jacket down here and uh, uh, if y'all want to visit with her about it. Now, are we ready? Oh, we have a visit. Is Will in here? Yes. Is, is, is Dawn in here? Will she be embarrassed if we have her stand up, Will? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, Dawn, do not stand up. That's Dawn. She's here visiting with us from England. Um, she knows uh, the Queen's English. And uh, she's here for about a month. And uh, uh, a friend Will met while he was studying over there. And so, uh, Dawn, uh, welcome. Visitors that are here that I did not introduce because I don't know you, uh, you were saved the humiliation. Uh, in the future, if you're visiting and want to be humiliated, just come meet me before I get up here and it's a piece of cake. Okay. I am, uh, to be honest with you, uh, tired of the 300s and I'm ready to get out of them. But we have one more lesson to do in the 300s, actually one and a half. We're going to do one lesson this week. We're going to do the Cappadocian Fathers and the Trinity this week. And then next week we're going to look at uh, uh, Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan, the end of the 300s. Uh, an interesting little uh, approach to things next week. And after that, we're going to look, I believe, at St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine was born in the 300s, but did most of his work uh, 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 in the 400s. And so we kind of get out of the 300s. If you've uh, uh, got Augustine, he's most famous for his confessions. If you've got a copy or want to get a copy and read it before we talk about him. Uh, if not, don't worry about it. The confessions is that's 11 or 12 chapters, I believe. But it's basically an, a long prayer to God. And it's a, a fascinating prayer that relates his history 
uh, as well as the way God has worked in the world and the way God will work in the future. So we'll be looking at St. Augustine uh, coming up here pretty soon, and uh, uh, somewhere in there I'll try and fit in some of the other classes. But thank you for being here this morning. The Cappadocian Fathers and the Trinity merges nicely with the sermon that we had this morning. Uh, the sermon talking about the three affirmative statements in Revelation of who Jesus is, that he's a faithful witness, that he's the firstborn uh, uh, of the resurrection, and then also uh, that he's the king of kings. Well, Jesus asked that question in Matthew 16. He said to his disciples, he said, who, is, who do you say I am? And who do the people say that I am? And that's when Peter gave the confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the living God. And uh, um, that is a question, though, that has been asked of the church and been asked of Christians for thousands of years now. Who is Jesus? And we hear that question still today. If you hear it from, we talked about this some, you'll recall, about a month and a half ago, with the Jehovah's Witnesses who will say that Jesus was a good man, but no more. You might go to a Muslim who will tell you that uh, uh, Jesus was a prophet. You might go to a Jew who would tell you that Jesus was uh, uh, a prophet and a good man. You might go to a New Age person who could even go so far as to tell you Jesus is the Son of God, as we all are. Or a Mormon might tell you that because a Mormon views all of us as really just brothers of Jesus in, in an eternal pre-existent sense. We pre-existed with Jesus and then were born onto this earth. Or if you went within the confines of Christian history and you looked at it, you say, who is Jesus? And we discussed this within the framework of the Council of Nicaea. I believe this is the picture I put up here. And I remember when I put it up, it just doesn't look too good up on PowerPoint. And it hasn't gotten any better. But this is the Council of Nicaea. They're meeting together in this town called Nicaea, and somewhere up on the throne is Constantine, the Christian emperor, who uh, presided over it. And you've got about 318 bishops there, and they're fighting over the issue of who is Jesus. And they came up with the creed, the Nicene creed, that was supposed Nicene creed. That's like Bush, President Bush calling everything nuclear. I cannot say Nicene Creed for the life of me. I call it the Nicene Creed, which is vitamin B6. I call it the Nicene Creed, which is a totally made-up word. And Charles sits over here and laughs every time I do it. And so, I'm sorry. It's just a nuclear thing with me. Um, the Nicene Creed was adopted, which was supposed to put all of this to rest in 325 A.D. It said, among other things, um, we believe in one God the Father, Almighty, and in one Lord, that's too much, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, God of God, do it this way, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Okay? Now, that's supposed to put to bed who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. He's the Son of God. He's begotten, but He's still God of God. He was begotten. He wasn't made. And He's of one substance, homoousios, with the Father. He's of one substance with the Father. And supposedly this was going to put it to bed. Put what to bed? Two different heresies that were present in the church at the time. 
One heresy was called uh, Arianism. The Arians within the church were a heresy. The second heresy we call Sibelians. Well, they were, would be Sibelians. The heresy would be Sibelianism. Okay? Forget those big words. They're technical. Let's discuss what they mean. Arians, you will recall, come from a fellow named Arius who came out of the region of Turkey. And uh, if, you think, if you're thinking like World War II, Hitler and the Nazis in the Aryan Brotherhood, okay, that's a different Aryan. That's spelled A-R-Y-A-N. comes from the Hindu word for something. Um, but the guy has blonde hair and blue eyes, and someone after I used that picture last time said, so is this where Hitler came from? No. This has nothing to do with that Arianism, okay? This is from a guy named Arius, his name, he would be U.S., and people who followed him were Arians. And here's what the Arians were teaching in the answer to the question, who is Jesus? They said, there is God, God Almighty, God the Father. That's the Creator, that's the God of the Old Testament. When God said to Moses, I am who I am. When God told Moses to have the Jews pray daily, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, if you're Jewish. When God told Moses in the Ten Commandments that you're to worship the Lord your God and put no other gods before Him, that's God Almighty. And that's what the Arians were teaching. Now, God Almighty, Father God... God of the Old Testament created Jesus, made Jesus, begat Jesus. Jesus is not God in an eternal sense. Jesus, there was a time when there was no Jesus. Jesus is a creature. He is created by God. Now they would say that He's not like us. He was created by God before God made the world. God made Jesus far above and beyond us. He was a real special. He was a unique creation of God. He's called also the Logos or Sophios, wisdom. Okay? Greek word for wisdom. So this is uh, uh, Jesus and this is who God made. And then Jesus with God made the world and us. That's what Arius taught. Now, Arius would tell you, Jesus is truly great. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. We exalt. We, we all, he's truly great, but He is lesser than God. And we should never equate the two. By the way, that is Jehovah's Witnesses' teaching today. You can go on their website and read it. Okay? Now, Arius, how does he get to this? Because to some of us, that just seems so foreign. Almost within our DNA now is the concept of the Trinity. So how did he get to this? Well, he would tell you two ways. First of all, he used logic. Here's his logic. God cannot change. Would you agree with that? Okay, God cannot change. See, he'd get you to agree with that. You are halfway down his road to conversion. Because after he says God cannot change and you agree with that, he says, so how can God become man? God could not have become man because God cannot change. Somebody became Jesus Christ. 
somebody was born of the Virgin Mary cannot be true God because God can't change. God can't take on humanity. That would be a change. Logic dictates Jesus Christ cannot be God if you're Arius or one of his followers. Now, he'd say, I don't want to just go with logic. I'm also going to go with Scripture. I'm going to go with Proverbs 8. If you read Proverbs 8, it's a chapter that talks about wisdom. Sophios. Actually, it's a feminine form, Sophia. But, but wisdom is the subject of Proverbs 8. And when you read Proverbs 8, Arius says it's really talking about Jesus, the Logos. For example, here's what it says. The Lord brought me forth as the first of His works. Before His deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began, when there were no oceans, I was given birth. See, he says, this is talking about Jesus. He says, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side, I was filled with delight day after day, always rejoicing in his presence. Arius would say, if that's not Jesus, who is it? Because you can't find anybody else in the Bible that it is. Of course, it says it's wisdom. We Orthodox Christians would say that is the reasoning and the principles that God used when he built all of this, which is why we seek wisdom out because it is what makes sense behind the universe. But we're just Christians. Um, Arius would say, this is talking about Jesus. He'd say, don't just have to go to Proverbs 8. Look at uh, John 1. How about John 1? In the beginning was the Word, that's Logos. And the Word was with God. Oh, and the Word was God. Yeah, he didn't like that part that much. Uh, <clears throat> what he would do with that is he would translate that a little differently. Because uh, uh, in, in the Greek, it does not have the word the in front of it. It's like you'd have an A in our language. The word was a God. Yeah, kind of in a lesser sense, he said. But he wasn't the God. Jesus is not the God. Now, Arius would tell you this is very important. Arius would not be trying to persuade you of this simply because he was demonic and trying to destroy your life. Arius would tell you this is important because if you acknowledge Jesus as equal to God the Father, you're committing blasphemy. You're violating one of the Ten Commandments, not to put any other gods before him. He would tell you not only blasphemy, but this may be a salvation issue in his mind. Because he says, Jesus, God can't change. So if Jesus really is God, then Jesus was never really man. And Jesus really can't save mankind. Because it takes Jesus as man to save mankind. And if Jesus is, is God and can't change and become man, and he never really was man, then you and I are hopeless. So this is what he would teach. So that's one heresy of the church. That's the heresy on the left. The heresy on the right is not there because it's right. It's because there just had to be something on the right. It's the Sabellianism heresy. 
Sabellianism heresy. What was that? Well, it goes by different names. It kept cropping up at different times. I've heard it cropped up in sermons that I've heard in my lifetime. Maybe you have. Here's Sabellianism. One God. Those, by the way, are thespian drama masks. Remember in Greek theater how they'd hold the mask up? One guy could play like different parts, you know? It's like schizophrenia. Yes, no, yes, no. See? Um, one God, there's only one God. He just had three different parts he played. He's God the Father in the Old Testament doing all of those kinds of things. And then that same God becomes incarnated and he's Jesus Christ. And then, after that, he goes away and he becomes the Holy Spirit. So he's God the Holy Spirit when he's working in our lives and here in our midst. He's God the Son when he's on earth or, or walking after his uh, uh, resurrection. And uh, he's God the Father Almighty at other times. Same guy, though. Just three different roles. You know... The biggest appeal of the Arian heresy and the Sabellian heresy is trying to make something very simple for people. The biggest appeal is it tries to take something as grand as God in all of His eternal glory and make it something that our brains really handle real well. I am very fond of on a daily basis looking at my fist. Because you make a fist, cut it off there at the wrist, and that's how big your brain is. Okay? And a bunch of those gray cells have to be dedicated toward helping you breathe and do all sorts of functions like that beyond just reasoning. And the idea that the rest of those gray cells stuck in my skull are going to comprehend the depths and the riches and the magnitudes of God Almighty in all of His eternal glory and splendor is really rather arrogant. I mean, my gray cells may be really good. I mean, I eat like uh, vitamins. You know? I'm, I'm, I, I work hard on learning new things so I can chase Alzheimer's away. But I don't care how good my gray cells are. It's still awfully arrogant. Sabellianism was an attempt to make it something very easy and digestible. Arianism was the same thing. And Nicaea tried to take care of this, but it didn't. It didn't at all. Let me tell you. This was not just, this issue of who Jesus is was not just something that bothered the theologians and the pastors. It was not the kind of thing where common church members just went on about life while the theologians and the pastors and the bishops and the archbishops and the minor bishops and the pawns and the kings and the queens and the knights and the rooks and all the other chess pieces. This was not the kind of thing where... where those in the, the lofty towers of academia were debating it, and everybody else was just happy eating the munchies on the street and going to church and singing good songs. This was actually a concern of the population. The Christians themselves, the everyday church people. In fact, one sermon talks about it. Talked about the problems on the street. So, 
This is not just a lofty philosophical argument at the time. Let's go to a Roman street scene and listen in on what they have to say. Uh, oh, that's like a wretched picture. Does it get any better out there? Okay, well, ignore that soldier there. He's just there to make it look Romanesque. Okay, boy, that's just wretched. Okay, that's like a building, and that's one guy buying something from some guy, and these are three people standing around talking, and that's probably some Roman edifice. Okay, you all kind of plugged in on the picture? All right, here it is. Do you have change for a dollar? Well, let me first explain how God made Christ. This is actually, these are word for word from this sermon. It says, you know, you can't walk down the street and ask someone for change without someone debating over you, saying, well, before I give you change, let me tell you about how God made Christ and that he was created. And all. Now, meanwhile, while that's going on over there, uh, what is the price of bread? Well, the Father's greater and the Son is lesser. Let's get that clear before I sell you the bread. And this guy puts it in his sermon. Because this is the debate going on. Charles spoke on Athanasius last week. By the time Athanasius died in 373, which is almost 50 years after Nicaea, here's what you've got. You've got a Roman emperor who's an Arian. The emperor himself, head of Rome, head of the empire, believes the Arian heresy. Not only that, a bunch of the bishops are Arians. Not only that, you've had 12 Arian creeds. And you're sitting there saying, well, how can they be Arians when the Council of Nicaea declared the things it declared? Easy. They just negotiate away the words. They change what the words mean. Bob's fond of saying, Dr. Bob's fond of saying, if we've got a case we can't win because it's not the kind of case that's a winner, we just try a different case. Now, you might think that means we take our case and we uh, trade it in on another one. No, he doesn't mean that. He says we reframe it. We had a case uh, we tried that y'all just stuck with me through thick and thin, uh, the Viox case in, in Angleton, Texas last year. And we got a jury of 12 Debbie Riddles. And these are like Republicans, 11 of them, Republicans that hate trial lawyers like me. And the idea that they're ever going to sit on a jury and award a victim money, oh, they might give them $1.50, but that's about it. You know, we're investing a million dollars in this case. We got to get over a million before our lady gets a penny because that's how much it costs to fight these people in this case. All right? I've got 12, well, 11 out of my 12 jurors are Debbie Riddles who just don't want to even hear about trial lawyers. An idea of, of uh, and I don't mean Debbie's this way, I just mean conservative Republicans that you'd be scared to death if you were me of trying a case in front of. And I looked at Bob and I said, what are we going to do? I said, these people aren't going to give us a product liability verdict. He says, you're right. We're going to have to try a different case. I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, what case are we going to try? He said... <laughs> Well, this is no longer a product liability pharmaceutical case. This is now a murder case because i got to tell you, all these people are death penalty people. And if we can prove they killed them, then they'll want to fry the company. <laughs> it's the kind of thing where you're picking the jury and you say to them, you just want to know, how many of y'all support the death penalty? And their hands all go up. 
say, I mean, and, and, and Bob tells the story about when he was picking a criminal. This is digressing for a minute. I can do this for a minute. Bob's digressing. I'm digressing. Bob's picking a jury right in East Texas, and it's in a capital murder case. And the, the DA wants to make sure that all of the jurors are what we call death penalty qualified. By that, we mean that uh, they are able to vote yes on the death penalty question because you've got to have a juror who's able to follow the law. And the law in Texas is you can assess the death penalty. So the DA's up there and he says, I need to know who's uh, got any you know, internal problems with the death penalty. And nobody really raises their hands. And he says, well, for example, Mrs. Jones. And he picks some 75-year-old lady out. He says, Mrs. Jones, if the facts warrant it and the evidence is there, uh, that, that, that this is all legitimate and this is in fact a crime, would you be able to administer the death penalty? Mrs. Jones paused for a moment and looked up. And she said, well, I guess someone would have to show me how to work the equipment, but I think I could. <laughs> DA, DA said, she'll do, Judge. Um, <laughs> um, so... Uh, so we just had to try a death penalty case. You know, we just said, you know, this is no longer a product liability case. This is a murder case. Our client is dead. We're going to show you who did it, who had the motive, who had the means, and why their alibis stink. And we just tried it like that. Well, that's what they do with the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed, excuse me. They'd take the Nicene Creed and they'd just redefine all of this. Well, it says true God of God, but yeah, but that's a lesser God of God. It says of one substance, but there's only one letter difference between it being of one substance and of being like substance. So we'll just say it's of like substance. You know, he was made of very similar stuff to God. And they do this, and then they'd start to, uh, so they'd adopt all these little minor creeds. And the way they do that, you see the, the, the Nicene Council was what's called an ecumenical council. It was huge. It, it had the church leaders from all over the world, including outside the Roman Empire, coming. Then, ultimately, the Council of Constantinople in 381 that we're working towards, same thing. But in the middle, these 12 other little creeds, the Arian bishops and the Arian guys would just get their own people together and have their own little party. and say, let's write our own creed, and we'll just claim that no one else came, and so this is God's will. And so they'd get all these little creeds popping up. Um, so by the death of Athanasius, you've got that. Now, that's 873. For 50 years, this has raged on within the church. And I want to tell you something. Eight years later, it's wiped out. Eight years. I say wiped out. Yeah, it's basically wiped out. It's kind of like killing a chicken. You've got, you know to put up with it scampering around for a few minutes after you chop off the head, but there's no question but that the head's been chopped off and it's dead. How did God go about in eight years eliminating these heresies, basically? What happened? Well, that's, uh, uh, it's wiped out by the time of the Council of Constantinople in 381. That's the church where the council was held. If you go to Constantinople, you'll see it today. It's been rebuilt because it's been burned a few times, but it's the same basic church. Interestingly, the church is Hagia, which is Greek for holy, Arene, peace. The name of the church, which had been built by Constantine originally, where the Council of Nicaea finally brought peace on this question was the Church of Holy Peace. 
And it is there, as uh, Olson, a uh, uh, theologi theological historian, said, from the Council of Constantinople onward, denial of the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, as spelled out in the Nicene Creed, has been considered by all major branches of Christianity, including Protestantism, as heresy and possibly even apostasy. Heresy means that it's... Uh, uh, outside the realm of, of, of uh, substantial, real, good, godly doctrine. Um, and apostasy means maybe even falling away from the state of grace. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, how did God get them there in eight short years is the question. And here enter the Cappadocian fathers. Kind of cool. To establish the doctrine of the Trinity once and for all, God used three guys. And they were all dear friends. Actually, two of them were brothers. Um, that's Basil. And that's his buddy, Gregory. And that's uh, his other buddy, Gregory. You remember the New Heart show? <laughs> I'm Larry. It's my brother, Daryl, and my other brother, Daryl. Um, Basil and that Gregory on the far right are brothers. Um, the Gregory in the middle was just a, a, a dear friend. Um, and I want to talk about those three guys for a moment uh, uh, because it's useful. We'll start with Basil. He's called Basil of Caesarea. You also might hear him as Basil the Great. Um, um, he was born in 330, so he's born five years after the Council of Nicaea. All right? Born in 330, his family were Christians, but they were also quite wealthy. He was born into a pretty wealthy family. So he had a really good education. He went to the Cappadocia, by the way. Cappadocia, where this is, is in, uh, I should have put a map up there. It's in Turkey. If, if Turkey is, is kind of, um, all right, y'all are from this side. If Turkey is, is a fist that sticks into the Mediterranean Sea, you know, you got Greece up here, you got uh, Africa with Is or Israel, I should say, the Middle East down here, and then you got Africa coming out over this way. Y'all with me? All right, if the fist is Turkey sticking out, that knuckle on my thumb is Cappadocia, okay? It's not really a coastal area like Tarsus, it's just north of there. So these guys uh, uh, are born in, in, in Cappadocia. He's born in 330, baptized 27 years later, um, had gotten a great Christian education, but also had a top-notch philosophical education. Went to the University of Athens and uh, studied there. Uh, uh, while he was there, that's where he got to know and became best friends with Gregory, the, the middle Gregory there. And uh, um, he finishes up all of his training and decides that uh, he wants to follow Christ much more diligently than he has before. So he renounces all of his wealth, will have nothing to do with it, gives it away, and starts a monastery. And uh, wants to live this life of dedication to God, a life of poverty. Uh, he is uh, uh, extremely well known for a couple of things. Uh, he's well known for his fight on the Trinity, and he's also well known for his charity because he would give away everything he could. And he lived a life to take care of poor people. And I love this fact about him because to me it says that Jesus Christ, he believed, was the Son of God, but was actually God as well. Not just a son, but God. No lesser. 
part of what we consider God. Jesus Christ, when you look at Jesus, he said, you see the face of God. You don't see a lesser face. When you look at Jesus and you see his thumbprint, you see the thumbprint of God Almighty and no, nothing less. And so he says, if we understand that's who Jesus is, then how could we not care for the poor? Because that's what Jesus cared for. How could we not reach out and give everything we've got if God himself would give his own life for anyone? And so that's what he's known for. Um, he's also, uh, he's called Basil of Caesarea because Caesarea, you remember we studied Eusebius, the church history guy who wrote the church history in the early 300s? Okay. When he died, they had to get a new bishop of Caesarea and uh, Basil was voted in. So that's why he's got that title, Basil of Caesarea. Great guy. He is the guy who said God is three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one substance. And yes, God is begotten, the Son is begotten, but that doesn't mean there was a time where the Son didn't exist. Okay? Here are the two examples he would give. He first of all said, Jesus is begotten in the same sense that the rays of the sun are. The sun is blazing, we see its rays. The rays emanate or are begotten from the sun itself. But you can't have the sun without the rays. As soon as the sun is there and shining, you've got rays. So just because Jesus emanates from or is begotten from the Father does not mean that there was a time where Jesus did not exist and that God made him. That was one or example, I guess is a better word. Uh, that he would use. A second one that he used is he says the Trinity is like a rainbow. You know, the rainbow makes up, you, it takes all the colors to make the rainbow. Barney knows that. <laughs> Gary watches Barney. I got daughters that can sing green, it's the color of the, I don't remember the song, but uh, there's a rainbow song that Barney sings, and it's got all of the colors of the rainbow in it. And when you put those colors side by side, what do you think you've done? You've made a rainbow, and it's a really beautiful one. I know that's the way the song ends. Yeah, thank you. I'd ask Michelle, but she's so much older than me. It goes so far back in her memory, she wouldn't get it. Um, the, uh, but he says the rainbow, he says it's got different colors, but they're all the same substance. They're all part of the rainbow. You can't divide them out and say, oh, there's a, an orange rainbow or there's a yellow rainbow. The rainbow is all of the colors, the spectrum. And so that was his. And, and I like what he said also because Basil said, by the way, while we're fighting over who Jesus is, don't forget the Holy Spirit's part of the Trinity too. And the Holy Spirit's God just as much. And so he says, let's go ahead. Let's don't have the battle for Jesus and win that and then have to start battling over whether the Holy Spirit is true and whether we've got a trinity with three or a binity with two. Okay? And then last but not least, he says, don't you realize, brothers and sisters, that the trinity is a mystery? It's not something that easily fits into your brain. God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. He is so far beyond our fist of a brain. 
And he says, instead of thinking that the Trinity is something that you should easily understand, consider it something you should chew on for the rest of your life and think about. Because you'll savor the mystery and God will unlock more and more to you as you walk with him. So that's what Basil said. Now Basil dies, unfortunately, uh, uh, before the council of, uh, of Constantinople in 381. Um, while he dies, Gregory of Nazianzus, who was that middle Gregory, his buddy, they were born in the same time, born in the same area. Uh, they were classmates early on. They went to the University of Athens together and studied there. They were college chums, if you will. They left college and uh, 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 Gregory became a rhetorician. That means he'd give speeches for a living. If you needed to hire someone to give a motivational talk, he's your guy. You need to hire someone to fill in for the preacher, he's the guy. He had a job. His job was giving speeches. A lawyer needs to hire him to make a speech for his client. He's the guy. This is what he did for a living. He was a rhetorician. And as a rhetorician, he was asked by his college buddy, his old-time chum, Basil, to throw it all away and come live in the monastery and just surface as needed to fight the heresies. And he said, no, I'll come and I'll work periodically at your monastery, but I'm not into that. That's not my calling. And so eventually he becomes a bishop of Nazianzus, which is where he gets his name from. He didn't like that either. He was a little bit upset about that, and uh, that caused a rift with Basil because Basil's who appointed him, and he didn't want to do it. Basil said, well, I need you to do it because I need the political help. And he says, I'm not, I don't want to do that. And he says, well, do it anyway for me. And he got to do it, and then he found out it was a bunch of paperwork, and he hated it, and he got really mad over it. And let's just make these people human because they are. So they got real chapped with each other and had a little rift, but it never really drove them apart because what held them together was the love of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever worked with someone in the church who has driven you apart, but I've got some friends who have worked together who've got pulled apart, and yet they remain steadfast friends in the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm amazed at that. But that's the blood and the pull that God has on people who love Him. And I can just amazed. And that's what happened with these guys. So they, uh, they go their way. Now, Gregory of Nazianzus has a nickname. If you're in a Greek Orthodox church and you want to really sound knowledgeable, you just walk around and say, what do you think about Gregory the theologian? Because that's his nickname there. Because what Gregory did, this speech giver, is gave five of the most powerful sermons the church had ever had on the Trinity. They were very powerful sermons. He stood up there and he said, how can Jesus join us to God if Jesus is not God? He turned the Arian argument on its head. Arius had said, Jesus can't be your salvation if he's God because God can't become man and you need a man to save you. What he did is, is Gregory said, no, you need a God to save you. And if Jesus isn't God, how's he going to join you back up to God? If Jesus is created, he can only join you as far as his creation. you got to have some... God has to join you together with God. He preached a powerful sermon on it. He preached a pow whoops, powerful sermon uh, uh, that, that really thrust the questions and turned them back around. Now, i got to tell you one more thing before we flip. This is the Gregory that actually presided over the council at Constantinople in 381. 
When his best friend died, he continued the torch in the fight. And to give the inaugural address at that council, he brought in Gregory of Nyssa. That's the baby brother to Basil. Basil's 10 years older than Gregory of Nyssa. And it's kind of cool. Gregory of Nyssa, now hold on. Basil, remember, wealthy family, all the money, all the best education, the best schools, okay? Gregory of Nyssa, none of that. He was homeschooled. Ten years junior. And I don't know if by the time he got ready for college, his brother had given away all the money or what. <laughs> but uh, Gregory learned what he knew from his brother. His brother came back and homeschooled him. And the neatest part to me is Gregory of Nyssa, the baby brother, the 10-year junior to these guys. And don't you know it wasn't just big brother Basil teaching him, but Basil's best friend Gregory too. Those guys teaching him. This young kid, the young sprout, far surpassed them all in his brilliance, his eloquence, and in the way God used him to eliminate any argument on this issue among the, the church at large. Gregory of Nyssa developed what theologians have subsequently called negative theology. Now that might sound bad to us because it almost has a negative vibe, but it's a positive thing, if you will. <laughs> negative theology says we can't understand fully what God is, but we can certainly say what He is not. We can at least embrace negatives about him, even if we don't understand the full picture of the positives. So he can say, God is not three different beings. He's one. We may not understand how he's one, but we can certainly understand that he's not three different beings. He says, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not lesser beings. They're not. We may not understand how they're all the same, but we can know the negative, that they are not lesser beings. It doesn't make logical sense and it doesn't make scriptural sense. And he was big on both. He laid them both out there. He could dispute, philosophize, and argue with anybody on the basis of philosophy and philosophical thought and the Neoplatonism that raged in the day or on the basis of scripture. He had both weapons. Good homeschool education. Then he said, hold on to the mystery here. How can a finite mind grasp the infinite God? There is a mystery of what's happened here. There's a mystery. And so what we have from these three guys and what came out of Council of Constantinople is, is some additions to the Nicene Creed that make it beyond dispute as we sing in our song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. One God, singular, God, in three persons. One substance. 
Now, would I like to give you a wonderful illustration so that you fully understand the Trinity? So that I fully understand the Trinity? Yeah, I'd love to, but I can't because I don't have one. And I have to chew on this myself to even be able to teach this lesson. So what can I give you? I can give you some points for home. <laughs> because ultimately, my question when I look at this stuff is, so what? What difference does it make? And the neat thing is, it does make a difference. This wasn't a fight just for fight's sake. It makes a difference in who we worship and who he is and what he's done for us. And I got to tell you, we live in a very, well, all right, we live in a capitalist society, right? You get what you pay for. You know, uh, uh, no such thing as a free lunch. Um, unless you're going to Debbie's house. And she serves it frequently, if you'll talk about Israel. Um, but, you know, we live in a capitalist society where we are so tuned in to doing things to get things. We're so result-oriented. And the idea of doing something with no result at all, i got to be candid with you, it's really hard for me. Vacation is really hard for me. Y'all do not want a vacation with me. I become what my brother-in-law calls tour guide Barbie. <laughs> I have a checklist. We're going to do these 17 things today. And if you peter out and you get too tired, that's fine. But tomorrow we'll have 22 instead of 17. Because from the time we wake up until the time we go to bed, we've got to stay busy doing fruitful things that, that have consequences and results. Now, I recognize on vacation, because I'm an adoring father with five beautiful children, that they can't go the way I do all the time. So I'm willing to get up a few hours early and get things set up so that when they're there, we are ready to go. <laughs> Rest, recreation. You know, it's like, I, and it's not my fault. My dad was this way. My dad would not go to Will's soccer games when Will was very, very young. He adored Will. He would do anything Will was doing. But he would not go to the soccer games if they weren't keeping score, which they didn't do in first grade. <laughs> because he'd sit there and say, well, what's the point in playing? if you're not keeping score and you don't know who wins. Okay. So, I mean, I came by this real honest. But I got to tell you something. This is a flaw in my makeup and character. And it's something I'm diligently working on. Because there is great value in doing things for no other reason than they're there. Doesn't have to I mean, paint a picture just because you're going to be creative and express yourself. Doesn't matter if anybody sees it. Doesn't matter. Just do it. Contemplate God and think about who He is and the ramifications. Even though it doesn't change your rate of pay at work. Even though it doesn't I mean, just spend time contemplating the eternal. Of course, everything has a purpose in my mind, so I do think it makes you better. Um, <laughs> Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it right. In Christ, Paul says in Colossians, in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul got it right. 
in Christ the fullness of the deity. We don't have half God. We see in Jesus Christ God incarnate walking on this earth. Not God in a different role. Heavens, if that were true, how's Jesus praying to the Father? Does he have two Greek masks? Jesus here, come in, God the Father. God the Father here, I read you loud and clear. Hey, would you please take care of this and raise Lazarus from the dead? You got it, here he comes. I mean, that makes a mockery of what Jesus was doing. Okay, this is, Jesus is, God was not in three, God is this complex God. But in Christ, I know the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. And I can tell you this, this is the mystery of God. That's Paul's word, mysterion in the Greek. This is the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, Proverbs 8, wisdom, and knowledge, hidden in Christ. So let's spend time exploring it and thinking about it, and it will change who we are. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the honor of speaking about you today, and I've probably made tons of mistakes in what I've made and said and my perceptions, but I pray that you will bless the hearing anyway and that we will all grow together in our understanding of you. We acknowledge right now you, God, in three persons, one God, one substance, and we acknowledge you as our Savior, we acknowledge you as our King, we acknowledge you as the firstborn, we acknowledge you for all the things you are, the faithful witness. But most importantly, the Lord and Savior of our lives, our Father in heaven, the counselor, the, the, the parakletos, the, 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 the peace that we have in our hearts, our source of wisdom, our source of joy, our strength in times of struggle. You are everything, as we sang this morning in service. And it is an honor to be your children. We love you and adore you. And we pray through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the way we know you fully, or as fully as we can, I should say. In him we pray, amen.